You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. In March 2015, the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre, in conjunction with Melbourne University Law School, commenced running Victoria's first statewide police complaints clinic. The initiative was launched as part of the centre's police accountability project, which you may have heard about before, and uh, the clinic provides assistance and advice to people wishing to make a complaint about the conduct of police officers. Now, one year on, the centre has released a report on the initiative's first year of operation, and it reveals some really interesting findings about the nature of such complaints and also what happens once they're filed to talk more about it and the issue uh, surrounding issues of police complaints i'm joined in the studio by julian mcdonald a solicitor with the flemington and kensington community legal center welcome to triple r thanks dylan so i want to get on to, to the results of your report shortly but i think um it'd be great to start with the current process for how people can file a complaint against the conduct of police officers? Sure. At the moment, there's three ways to make a complaint against the police in Victoria. You can either make a complaint to the local police station, you can make a complaint to Professional Standards Command, or you can make a complaint to IBAC. Um, We assist with that process. And so those mechanisms, I understand, are investigated internally by, by Victoria Police themselves is is that the case that's the case so if you make a complaint to a local police station um a local sergeant might take and investigate the complaint themselves if you make a complaint to professional standards command which is what we do then victoria police have their own division for investigating complaints and if you make a complaint to ibac typically and and by typically i mean in over 99 percent of cases they'll refer it back to professional standards command to investigate and so how did your, your clinic, what was the process behind getting that set up? Was that out of a, a concern for, for that process of the way complaints are, are handled? That's right. Um, we're, we have a history of, um, with the police shootings back in Flemington of, of um, police accountability and we set up the police accountability project quite a few years ago and one of the things the solicitors were doing was making complaints for people and there was just an overwhelming demand so we decided we needed a dedicated clinic to take on all those cases. And so the initiative has been running for a bit over a year and um, something that kind of stuck out to me when I I read your report during the week was that you've had to turn away 55 people who made complaints. Were they legitimate complaints that you simply didn't have the resources to to follow up on? That's right. We we have so many complaints that we receive. I think it's um, 170 or so last year. Um, And we have key intake criteria just to sort out the number of complaints we can take on. So at the moment, we're looking at complaints where there are allegations of excessive force by police, which is where police basically bash someone up. Uh, racial profiling, where people make racist comments or are arresting people simply based on race, and uh, duty failure and family violence for the victims, which is where police are failing to act, uh, where people are victims of family violence. And of those categories, excessive force was was the most common complaint people filed. Were they, in your experience, really quite serious incidents of, of excessive force? Um, they, they range from... Yeah, less less serious to more serious. Um, not all of them were at the highest end, but certainly a common theme was people being pepper sprayed by police when there's absolutely no need for it. And and you hear about that more so or often in kind of protest scenarios. That's right. And lately we've seen a concerning trend with police indiscriminately spraying people at, at our protests and rallies and not just people who are involved on the front lines of the protests, also members of the media are also getting hit by pepper spray. And so... 
Of the complaints that you've filed in, in the one year that, that the report covers of your operation, that the clinic's operation, there were 51 complaints submitted and one of those was found to be substantiated. So that was a, a 2% strike rate. What's going on there? Why is such a, a low rate of substantiation? Yeah, um, just to correct, it's 51 allegations, not complaints. The oh, complaints sorry. contain a number <laughs> of allegations. But, but the fact remains that, yes, it's less than 2%. And I think it's a case of... Um, Basically, the fox is in charge of the hen house. Police are investigating their own complaints, and this is what you get. Um, we think it's definitely a case of systemic bias. Um, I've seen a number of these complaints, obviously, since we've been making them, and I can tell you that more, absolutely more than 2% are legitimate, but because of police failings in investigating themselves, that, that's the end result. And that's why we really need an independent body to investigate police complaints. And... In what sense were, were those uh, complaints or allegations um, found to be not substantiated by police? What sorts of things were they coming up with that were, that were found to be acceptable use of force, for example, in, in their eyes? Um, often they'll say the police uh, members were frightened, um, so they feel that the force is justified. Or even more commonly, that there is very little explanation given. Um, I've seen many letters where... All you get back from making a police complaint is a letter saying police acted in accordance with policy and practice and procedure, and that's it. No explanation at all. And something else I, f- I found really interesting in, in the report was, I guess, the, the lack of transparency um, as it currently stands when complaints or allegations are filed. So is that a really significant issue, that people don't know what process is currently in place for police, Victoria Police, looking into those particular complaints? Absolutely. There, there is a true lack of, of transparency um, and in the outcome letters at the end, like I just mentioned. But also, you can do a freedom of information request to try to find out what steps the police took to investigate uh, the complaint. But a lot of those, um, a lot of the documents you'd expect to get back are blocked by sections of the FOI Act. So you can't actually see all the steps the police investigators taken to look into your complaint. And... I understand that, that when the clinic was set up, you didn't really advertise or, or push it too hard that, that you were operating, um, yet you still received kind of more uh, people coming coming to you than, than you could handle. Is there, I guess, um, I mean, how do you account for that, that larger demand? What, what do you do when there's people coming to you that have such a serious complaint that you can't follow up on? Well, it is difficult, and that's why we have our intake criteria to try to narrow down the sort of cases that we take on. And um, you're right. I mean, it's just it is a problem, and we need to try to address it by perhaps getting more funding and, and opening up the number of cases we can take. But at the moment, yeah, you're right. Some cases that are legitimate complaints, we just don't have the time to assist with, unfortunately. And anecdotally, from those people that, that come to you, do you feel that they would have found a way to file that complaint without the support of the clinic? Because a lot of people would feel, you know, intimidated about going to Victoria Police and making a complaint when they might have been, you know, in quite a kind of tense situation, potentially a protest or something like that. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm 100% sure that some of those people who have given advice to on how to make a complaint haven't followed through because of the worry about dealing with the police in that way. And... I mean, in the conversations that, that the community legal centres had with police, and, and I think it's important to not kind of tarnish all police with the same brush. There's many out there who, who do their work in, in the best way they can. Has there been a willingness, I guess, to review the current 
complaints process and, and, and bring about change? Well, I think um, the equality is not the same report, which um, was a result of the, the Hale-Michael settlement, which was a civil case that we ran, um, shows Victoria's police willingness to say racial profiling is not okay and they still have a they have a 0% tolerance for it, which is very encouraging to hear and that's what we're hearing from the highest levels. But as you can see from our complaints, um, there are still cases of racial discrimination going on by members of the police force. So I'm, I don't want to say that Flemcam's against the police. We're certainly not. In fact, what we're trying to do is make Victoria Police the best police in the world. But certainly things need to change. We need um, command to admit there is a problem of racial profiling still and we have to keep, um, being, account- they have to keep being accountable to the public. Uh, if you've just tuned in, we're talking with Julian McDonald. He's a solicitor with the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre. And that uh, high-profile case, I guess, from a few years ago around racial profiling has, as you mentioned, led to change in the way that police, uh, Victoria Police conducts itself. And they've implemented some changes to make police officers, I guess, more accountable when they're stopping people on the street, for example. I know there's a, um, a receipt process that's in place currently. And, and out of this report, um, I read in ABC News during the week that IBAC, the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission, is set to make, I think, nine recommendations on how Victoria Police can better handle this complaints process. So are you hopeful that we're seeing positive change? Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, the, the ticketing receipt trial has finished and um, we still haven't received Victoria Police's um, report on that or their figures on that so we'll be interested to see what comes out of that and what sort of people they are stopping um, as for IBAC um, Brett Graham on that ABC report who's the Assistant Commissioner of Police in regards to complaints um, he mentioned that the IBAC recommendations were about service delivery about delay um, and about appropriately allocating investigations which we're still we're, we're happy to hear, but it's I don't think it goes towards the systemic bias that police um, bring to their investigations. And so, how do you begin to address that? Well, what we really, really need is an independent body to investigate police complaints. That's that's one of our centre's main goals to try and get that body. And the the clinic is still operating. I understand. Is it is it kind of a, a long term? initiative that Flemington Kensington Legal Centre will continue to operate? Well, we have funding until 2017 and we'll, we'll hope to continue running this clinic for as long as we need to. Basically, we want to achieve our policy objectives. Once we have a true independent body investigating p- complaints, there might be no more need for the clinic, which will be mm. fantastic. Someone that the public can go to and have confidence in, that's transparent and achieves real outcomes for clients that they're satisfied with. And uh, I know you've got quite a a large demand as it currently (laughs) stands, but if uh, someone out there does have some grievance with their encounters with police officers, what's the the best kind of recommendation for them? Um, Please give us a call uh, on 93764355. We'll take your complaint. We'll see if we're able to take it on as a case um, and then... I'll meet you for an interview. If not, we'll be able to send you a letter of advice on how to make a police complaint. Well, it's, um, it's a really important initiative and the, the report makes for really fascinating reading. You can find it on the Police Accountability website, uh, which is operated, of course, through the Flemington and Kensington Legal Centre. That website is policeaccountability.org.au. And uh, Julian McDonald, a solicitor from that centre, has been our guest. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Dylan. Josh Earl has been a Lime champion, a breakfaster, quiz show host. He's also a comedian, general man about town. He's also even an author of some of the Western Bulldogs' famous <laughs> match day batters. <laughs>
And now he has his own kid show as part of the Melbourne Fringe Festival. He does it all. It's called Oliver Upper Tree. And to talk more about it, very happy to have Josh here in the studio. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Good morning. Out of everything you've done, is riding the Western Bulldogs banner your kind of crowning achievement? That's at the, the most people who I went to high school with have searched me out and went, hey, I read that was good. How, you do, how did you ever do that? I'm like... I used to host a TV show. Like, surely that's more <laughs> impressive. But no, uh, Danny McGinley, who n- writes them for the whole year, um, is a friend of mine. And so he got – he just asked for some advice mm. and some, some inspiration. So I just wrote – I wrote the Collingwood one and then last week's one against Hawthorne. So. Uh, you're not a Dogs fan, though. No, I go for North Melbourne. So I actually uh, wrote some for against North Melbourne that he didn't use. But he used – he does this thing called Rejected Banners and wow. uh, a Twitter thing and he just puts up the ones that – he knows that they won't ever put on the banner because it's just <laughs> libelous. So I, I wrote some of them and then he said, oh, if you want to write a real one, let me know. Is there more to come? Uh, I, don't, oh, I don't know. Mate, I haven't written this week's one. So if they beat GWS, maybe... Oh, imagine yeah. if I got to write the imagine grand final one. grand final banner. <laughs> <laughs> you might as well retire after yeah, that. Yeah, I probably would. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> but no, you better not because you've got, you've got a show happening as part of the Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's called um, Oliver Up a Tree. And I thought to kind of get people in the mood for it and give you a bit of a sense of it. I might play the trailer yes. first and then we can have a chat about it. So this is, um, this is Oliver Up a Tree by Josh Earl. Oliver Up a Tree by Josh Earl. Greyston was grey. It was also a town or a village or a place. It wasn't a particularly nice town or a nice village or a nice place, but... It wasn't bad either, it was just, it was, it was the noise you make when someone asks you to do something when you're actually quite comfortable. You don't really want to get off the couch and dry the dishes, but you know it won't hurt, so you take a small breath in, you sigh it out and you go, all right. Greyston was that all right. No one ever holidayed in Greyston. If you were driving through it, I doubt you'd even notice it, I mean... If you were playing an only mildly entertaining game of I Spy, the game of I Spy would beat Greyston. If you're in the backseat annoying your little brother by putting your finger as close to his face but not actually touching his face and saying, not touching, can't get mad, this would be infinitely more exciting than Greyston. The only reason you would stop at all in Greyston would be because your sister was busting for the toilet, because she drank all the drink far too quickly and was too shy to go behind a tree. So your dad would say, all right, next time we come to her, we'll, we'll try and find a public toilet, but... You'd be quick because we're making great time. And you would stop at Grayson's public toilet. She would run as fast as she could because as soon as you knew she needed to go, you thought it'd be quite funny to talk about nothing else but water and waterfalls and swimming pools. Even though if she did happen to wet herself, you'd be stuck sitting next to someone covered in wee. And really, why would you want to do that? After your sister had used the public toilet, she would run back into the car and you'd leave Grayson as quick as you could not even remembering the name of the town or the village or place, but remembering it had a toilet. The mayor of Grayston knew this was the only reason people stopped here, so he spent a lot of money erecting a sign at the entrance of Grayston that said, Welcome to Grayston. Please use our toilets. <laughs> Please use our toilets. So um, that's a, a preview of, of Josh Earl's Fringe Show, which is currently playing as part of the Melbourne Fringe Festival, Oliver Upper Tree. And 
Where's Greyston? What's so Greyston is like it says. It's just a boring town that no one ever. There's about 300 people who live there, and none of them talk to each other. This is the this is kind of the, the setup of the show. And so the, there's a baker who just cooks uh, wholemeal loaves. That's all he ever bakes. No one asks for anything else. Oh, wholemeal. Yeah, there's a there's a teacher who teaches the same lessons exactly the same way every year, and if any kids ask a question, she doesn't answer it because the year before they didn't ask questions. And so, <laughs> and there's uh, two police officers who just drive up and down the main road looking for stuff to do, but there's never anything to do because everyone keeps their problems to themselves. Right. And then there's a boy called Oliver, and he wants to know about the people who he shares a postcode with. And so he doesn't know how to figure this out. He, he's trying, and um, yeah, and so the whole show is him trying to figure out about the people of Greyston. And it's called Olive Upper Tree. And so he goes to the library and he asks if there's anything, how he can find out about the people. And he, they say, oh, the family tree. And he goes, yeah, can I look at the family trees? And he, he doesn't have the authority to see that. But he also wants to see the whole town, not just families. And so he's, there is a ta- there's one tree in the town. And so he thought, <laughs> I'll, cl- I'll climb that. I'll get to the top because he th- heard authority. To get authority, you have to climb high. And so he thought, okay, at the top of that tree, that's where I'll find authority. And if I don't, well, at least I get to climb a tree, and that's a good day. Wow. And so everyone in the town tries to come. They come and try and get him down, and that's where the show kind of really takes off. It's everyone showing off their special skills on how they can get a boy out of a tree. Well, it's, um, I mean, trees figure so much in, in people's childhood. I mean, I remember climbing trees to get balls out of trees yeah. and hiding up trees or whatever it might be. They're, I kind of miss it in a way. I remember... I've went into a, a speech that John Marston did about his school and part of it he was like it's important that we let them climb trees and fall out of trees mm. and I, yeah I remember as, as an adult you don't climb too many trees it's, it's you, not really socially acceptable no, is it but it should no. be yeah climbing a tree is a good thing to do like, <laughs> and so yeah and so the show um, it's about community it's about trying to like you know and, and sharing stories and talking and everyone has a this special skill or everyone has something that excites them and that's what the show is about and so hopefully the kids who come that to the show also get to uh you know show off what excites them as well and this is the, the first time it'll be performed i yeah, understand first at time, Melbourne yeah i've done kids shows before so uh last year i did a show called my family's weirder than your family and that was uh more stand-up this is kind of more of a, a play but it's just me on stage so i'm kind of interacting with the kids as well and so it was commissioned by a festival in perth called the awesome arts festival and so they kind of said oh we want you to do a show for us for our festival can you write one and so in order to do it i thought i better do some some shows of it beforehand i get to perth and because i don't know like you know you want to do it in front of an audience and Mm. i don't know 25 kids to just put a trial show on so i thought i'll do it in the melbourne fringe because melbourne fringe is a really good festival for um, showcasing new ideas and that kind of stuff and so that's what I thought. I thought, all right, I'll do three night, three days only, and so it starts in like a week and a bit. Do you have kind of, um, I don't know, more trepidation performing something brand new in front of kids than, than adults? Or Well, yes and no. I mean, kids are a great audience in that they're so honest. Like, they just don't have that thing of like, oh, well, they, the person tried really hard and they put a lot of time into it, like adults will. <laughs> so, you know, if you do a bad show and afterwards, yeah, well, well, I see what you're doing, but kids are like, no, nah, it was boring. It was mm. boring. And so... I, th- I really like that, though, as well. They're really honest and it's, it makes you a better performer, I think, if you can actually engage them for the full 50 minutes is how long the show goes for. And I guess you get an immediate response from kids. I mean, they don't really hold back at sort yeah. of laughing out loud or, or yeah. you know, heckling. Well, it, or it, it is really interesting, though, with kids because sometimes I do a show and they don't laugh much. They don't laugh as much as I expected, but then afterwards they're like, that was the best thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, oh, it's because they don't go to shows like, 
especially stand up. There's not there's not that much kids stand up out there, and mm. so so much of their watching like entertainment is through screens and stuff like that. And so you don't laugh out loud when you're just on your own. And often they they'll look at their parents and see if it's okay to laugh because you know I do kid stuff, so I talk about bums, and this show's got a the toilet in it, and so yeah, we, I do a fair bit of toilet stuff about the toilet. And so they kind of look and say, uh, is it okay to laugh at this? And the other thing, especially, I, I don't think Triple R listeners will be like this, but <laughs> I do it so... I've been doing... I did it up in Brisbane the other week, uh, my old show, and so many of the parents there just think, okay, this is a time to check my phone. Really? Yeah, and it really annoys me. Not that, you know, I, it's not about me going, I ne- you need to pay attention to me. It's just mm. that surely you want to model, all right, we're at a show, we're going to you know, watch this show and, and, you know, this is what you do and you're modelling the behaviour that you want your kids to not just, oh, I'm bored, so I'm just going to check something else. And, yeah. And I get it. Parenting is tiring and you just want some breaks. But, but come on. please, if you do come see my show, <laughs> like, just put your phone in your bag and, and you'll be fine. That's interesting because I feel like in, you know, at the movies and, and at shows, I feel like the reason people don't do that is more out of respect than yeah. that they really don't, you know, don't want to check Facebook or something, yeah. but they don't because they respect the performer. But it's interesting when they've got kids there, if they think, oh, this is my time to check out, I'm just a minder, yep. you know? Yeah, so I, I look, hopefully Melbourne Fringe audiences won't be doing that. No, so, yeah. they wouldn't. <laughs> Not in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so also this show kind of started out as a, a book as well. Kind of, It's written for a book and then I thought I don't know how to get a book published so I'll just do it as a show and hopefully something else will happen later down the track is I mean an, an hour it goes for an hour 50 so minutes 50, yeah. 50 minutes that, that's a long time to be performing I mean is that more content than than you need for a, for a kid's book or uh, I don't know it's about 13,000 words mm. so far um, <laughs> yeah um, I'm not sure so it is this thing because every seven minutes something I've had a either it's a song or it's uh, some animation or stuff, and so every seven minutes something will change, so it kind of resets, and so the, the fifty minutes does go quite quickly because you're like, oh wow, that's like there's five songs there, and yeah, mm. it's, it's over. So you're, are you playing live? As yeah, well? I, yeah. I, oh, some some are talking back and track, but some are live. Yeah. If you just tuned in, we're talking to Josh Earl about his show Oliver Upper Tree, appearing as part of uh, this year's Melbourne Fringe Festival before heading over to Perth, and um. Is Greyston a particular place? I mean, do you have a particular setting in mind for Greyston? Not really. Like, I grew up in a small town, um, but it was a lot bigger than 300. And so, yeah, it's, it is just a, one of those towns I thought, try to thought of the most boring town possible. Like, just there's not much going on in Greyston. People are happy with that as well. People just like to keep themselves themselves. And, you know, I lived in Launceston for a bit, and so Greyston's not much of a change from the name of Launceston. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's... Typical of the kind of towns that I kind of grew up in and around, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the people, I mean, I don't want to spoil the show That's at right. all, but, but the people of Grayston are, are good folk. They're very good people. Large. They're very good people. They just keep the problems to themselves. That's all. Like mm. if there's a, there's a girl in the town who, who got a brush stuck in her hair like eight oh. years ago and she didn't want to cut her hair so she just couldn't get it out. So it's just, it's just there now. <laughs> and people accept it. No one asks her any questions. Um, and so there's, there's that, but the, the exciting thing is, is there's a bit of interaction amongst the kids as well. So it's a theatre show, but they get to get like there's the town librarian. There's no books in the library, by the way, um, because she's um, ripped up all the pages to make paper planes. That's her, that's her passion, right? And no one cares because no one like there's a, there's a no fiction book policy, and no one asks any questions, so they don't need any non fiction books anyway. <laughs> and so I have a uh, hundred paper planes in the show every day, and so the kids get to throw some paper planes around. And then another guy, he really likes teddy bears. It calms him down, and so. 
we throw 100 teddy bears around as well. You put 100 teddy bears? I, I went to Ikea and bought 100 teddy bears. Wow. Yeah, I know. They looked at me so weird when I went through the checkout <laughs> with just 100 teddy bears of the same pair. And so it is, it's a fun thing to do. Like, and because in my last show, I did this, a similar thing with underpants. We threw underpants around and it was the most fun I've ever had on stage. But with the teddy bears, I think it's even better because you can really get some purchase on those. Yeah. And, and you can't really get hurt. No. By a teddy bear I've, ma- I've made sure there's no like beads or eyes on, it's all just cotton. It's yeah. just, yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> Good. Um, and I mean, you're always up to so much writing different shows and, and jet setting kind of around the country doing, is, is there anything else you've got kind of in, in the works at the moment or is Oliver Upper Tree kind of it for you at, um, at this stage? I've, I've started work on my comedy festival show for next year. Wow. So it's called Festival. It's about, it's a music festival condensed into one hour. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, that'll be, that'll be fun. But I, yeah, at the minute I'm just concentrating on this, but that's in the back. Oh, I'm always one of those people who like, I want another writing project to, take me away from the writing project I'm meant to be doing mm. and so yeah it's a good way of going alright I can do some work and I feel like I'm actually being productive <laughs> when I'm actually slacking off so I mean Oliver Upper Tree it's it's designed for kids but you encourage adults to come along I mean yeah, adults I'd, who want to throw teddy bears yeah around, I'd say it's there. for ages about 6 to 12 I'd say that um, but there is a lot in there that like you know it, it, it's written for kids but I it, Hopefully it's it's good enough that adults will go. Actually, this is a nice story. If you if you hear, heard that little intro bit that we played before and you liked it, it you you like the rest of the show. The rest of the show is pretty similar. Mm. Well, it, it sounds great, and it's uh, being performed Tuesday twenty seventh, Wednesday twenty eighth, and Thursday twenty ninth of September eleven fifteen at Arts House yes. as part of the Melbourne Fringe Festival and um, appropriate for ages, roughly kind of six to twelve. And you can get tickets via the Melbourne Fringe website. And um, we've been speaking to Josh Earl all about Oliver Upper Tree. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for. Catch you soon. As we speak, a group of people are making their way on foot from Pakenham to Morwell in an attempt to raise awareness about the need to support the Latrobe Valley to transition to a clean energy economy and future. Dubbed Walk with the Valley, the event runs over the next week and covers around 100 kilometres in total. It's been organised by a group called Earthworker. And um, on the line from Earthworker, we have Dan Musil joining us. Uh, How are you going, Dan? Good, thanks, Dan. How are you going? Ah, well, thanks. And uh, where are you now? We are now at Pakenham Station in uh, the outskirts of Melbourne, assembling to begin the walk. We um, had a, a, the official launch of the walk and with a, an event on the steps of Parliament House in Melbourne. We had a range of speakers and kicked things off, and, and um, we've made our way now to Pakenham, where we're about to start the walk. And I guess over the past few years in particular, we've heard quite a bit about um, clean energy transition in the Latrobe Valley coming up, particularly after that horrendous uh, mine fire in Hazelwood. What specifically do you hope to achieve out of this walk? Yeah, great, great question. So um, the Earthworker Cooperative, we're a community organisation that is um, seeking to put in place some pretty practical steps in a just transition for the valley. Um, We've been working for a while to set up across Australia, a network of worker and communally-owned cooperatives in sustainability-focused industries with the aim of providing kind of dignified employment for um, for people and for those, that employment to be placed in places like Latrobe Valley where there's a real need um, for opportunities as power industry changes. Um, so the aim of the walk is, I guess, there's three threefold. In one sense, um, where fundraising walkers are being sponsored to carry out the, the epic 100-kilometre journey um, with all the proceeds going towards setting up our first worker-owned factory in Morwell, in North Shore Valley, which will be um, manufacturing solar hot water tanks, solar hot water technology, as well as we're looking at some um, battery trailers and battery storage technology as well. 
So part of the walk is, is to fundraise for that. We're also really hoping just to build um, you know, the public conversation about different economic futures for the valley. We know that the economy down here is going to change as power stations start to close and that um, given the pressing urgent need to, to deal with climate change, we know those stations need to close soon. Um, so we, we want to build yeah, a conversation about what kind of futures the valley wants and we want people to be at the front of those conversations. Um, and I know there's a lot of people who are kind of awaiting a, a decision on the Hazelwood uh, plant, for example, which is a, a particularly dirty uh, plant and, and one that's really old as well. And um, we've heard yeah. even at the state government level that there's been a, a $40 million investment, I understand it, in, in energy or transition away from coal in the Latrobe Valley. Do we have any clarity at this stage of, of what that actually means and how it might um, affect or, or involve people in the community who want to be part of that transition? Yeah, um, the government has announced the whole whole section of money to support the community transition. Um, none of that has been spent yet, and st- we're still waiting, really, for um, announcements to be made about exactly how it's going to be spent. Some has been allocated for um, an enterprise fund through Regional Development Victoria, um, but lots of it is still yet to be decided upon, and there's a whole bunch of um, different groups, um, businesses and so on, who are wanting to stick their hand in the pot. So... Um, yeah, we we had to see, but I think the point you make about the community having a clear say um, is really important. That um, this is a community that um, you know has has helped power Victoria and large parts of Australia for nine and a hundred years, um, and has you know in many ways all the cost of that. And that was particularly the case in the privatisation, where um, the power industry was privatised. Um, thousands and thousands of jobs were lost and, and power was really taken out of the hands of the community. So I think it's really important that in moving forward we, we think about ways to develop economies and enterprises that support and empower the community. And it's something, I mean, we've spoken with Tom Doig on the program a number of times over the years. He, he wrote, of course, a book, The Coalface, which was all about the, the history of the Hazelwood power plant and, and the way that the community responded after that, that fire, which um, devastated so many people and, of course, has had ongoing health impacts. But, but what really kind of struck me in reading that book was that there were alliances formed in the Latrobe Valley among people who maybe you wouldn't necessarily imagine working together. There were kind of environmentalists with people in the valley who'd been had a stake in the mine, who might have worked there, um, who weren't traditional environmentalists or greenies, as you might say, but, but there's a common aim here, it seems. There's a common aim in having jobs and having an economic future in the Latrobe Valley that isn't invested in, in dirty power. Yeah, I, I think that's that's happening. I think that's a, a key um, thing that has been, been the centre of earthworkers' work for the last 15 years as well is is coming from a recognition that um, if, if we're going to talk about climate change or we're going to talk about clean energy transition, we can't really talk about that without also talking about livelihoods and the, and the way that our communities meet their needs, especially in places like the valley. And, and when we recognise that and we and we recognise the, the things we have in common, there are there are plenty of reasons why unlikely alliances, as you put them, um, can start to take shape. The Earthworker Cooperative um, comes from a, a long-standing effort to build bridges between the environment movement um, and the labour movement, trade unions, especially those representing workers in industries like logging and, and um, power industry and mining. And, um, yeah, w- when we talk about practical steps, practical ways to move forward, um, we've found that there is enormous support for this kind of thing. 
it's it, and, and part of what Earthworker, I guess, motivated Earthworker in the start too was was wanting to get past hollow talk about green jobs um, because some people get a bit bit wary of um, just jargon. Pe- people saying that we can have green jobs to to help um, the transition, but without anything necessarily concrete to back them up. And so what Earthworker is seeking to do is bring um, different people together, much in the way that you described um, happened after the mine fire, um, to, to work on really practical outcomes, ways that um, we can start moving forward together. If you just tuned in, we're talking with Dan Musil. He's from Earthworker and he's currently part of a, a group walking around about 100 kilometres from Pakenham to Morwell, all to raise awareness about energy transition in the Latrobe Valley. And um, I'm really fascinated by Earthworker's model, Dan, and, and it, it seems to me, I mean, having kind of looked through uh, your website and some of the testimonials of people involved, um, it's kind of based on, on workers' cooperatives, as you mentioned, but also on, on ma- manufacturing, local manufacturing. And we hear that that's kind of on the wane and that Australia doesn't have an economic future in that particular line of work. But do you think that's necessarily the case? Yeah, um, I don't think that's the case, and I don't think it should be the case. I think that's also the other part of the question. We can talk about the economy as if it's this apolitical um, beast that does its own thing, um, when really decisions that we all make, particularly those in in government and those in business, um, actually have a big impact on the way our economy operates. And we think that there needs to be, or there is a really strong role for manufacturing to play in Australia, um, to provide jobs and, and to build the things we need, and that's especially the case when it comes to climate change, um, when we need to radically um, kind of reboot the way we live to, to be more sustainable, um, and that incorporates renewable energy and energy efficiency, doing things differently. We think there's a real role for building the, the goods that we need to work our way out of climate change. Um, and so, yeah, we, we do believe manufacturing has a really important role, and part of what the Earthworker Cooperative um, kind of broad business model is about is finding ways to sustain local manufacturing whilst providing jobs and also providing kind of rapid uptake of renewable energy goods. And a key part of of that business model is working with organisations, community organisations like trade unions to um, set up what we call kind of collective markets, ways to distribute locally made goods to um, households and and families and communities um, in a way that makes it easy and affordable for them but also then provides the bulk demand if you like, to support a local manufacturing industry. And so just on, on workers' cooperatives, how do they actually function? Because there's something that probably in the mainstream we haven't heard a lot about. Of course, we, we know they have a long sort of history in, in the trade union movement and in the sort of workers' movement across Europe as well. But, but how do they function on a practical level? Yeah, great question. Well, um, worker cooperatives and, and trade unions kind of emerged at a similar time and, and for, for a period of history where, where, you know, one and the same thing. Workers' cooperatives are basically, um, well, a cooperative is any association of, of people who voluntarily join for a common purpose, right? Worker cooperative is, is a cooperative where the members are the workers, and typically it's a business where workers collectively own and run their own business. Um, and workers' cooperatives have a, a long and proud history around the world. We don't, you're right, we don't have a great history of it here in Australia, um, but there are some sterling examples of successful worker cooperatives and and of networks of worker cooperatives in other parts of the world. And one great example is the Basque region of Spain, where the Mondragon Cooperative Networks, um, a whole network of, of now over 120 worker cooperatives employing almost 80,000 people in this, um, what was once an economically disadvantaged area of Spain. 
they've um, been running now for, for over 50 years and have uh, yeah helped sustain the local economy. Um, so that they can be a great story of, of economic development, but also at an enterprise level, at the level of the business, they're also quite democratic. Workers collectively own and run and decide on the nature of the work they do and the role that that work plays in the economy. Um, and I think that question of democracy is a really important one. Um, you know, we supposedly live in a democracy where that means voting between two often poor choices once every three years, but the places lots of us spend lots of our days and the, the places where decisions that are made that affect our, our lives every day, often in business, we, we have no real say in. So having democracy in the workplace and democracy in the economy um, is a really key, I guess, an aim, but also an outcome of worker cooperatives as well. And the final thing too, I guess, is this question of economic equality and inequality. Um, you know, we live in a, in a capitalist system where increasingly the rich are getting richer and the poor are missing out. And we think democratising the ownership of um, the basis of our economy, of our workplaces and our businesses, and ensuring that um, not only do people decide what happens in the business, but people collectively and equally share in the, the, the profits of that business. We think that's a really important thing um, for for moving forward as well. And the first of those cooperatives that you've had a role in setting up, I understand, is, is Eureka's Future. Is that currently functioning in, in the Latrobe Valley? This is part of what we're um, walking for. So the Eureka's Future Workers Cooperative has been a, yeah, the, the, um, if you like, the pilot project for the Earthworker Network, um, and we've been working for quite a few years to set that up. Um, we were working with a, a, um, a partner business in Dandenong, in, out of Melbourne, to start manufacturing um, high-quality solar hot water technology, solar hot water tanks. Um, and we were working with workers there really hard to um, help them become worker owners in the first worker cooperative based in Dandenong. And from there, we were going to leapfrog and set up a factory in Moor in Montreux Valley. Um, unfortunately, earlier this year, that business hit the wall, which was a bit of a blow. Um, but we've managed to um, secure the machinery and the intellectual property or all the equipment we need to set up um, that same manufacturing process down in Moore in Montreux Valley. So part of what the walk is about is fundraising to help us get that factory up and running. We've managed to move all the machinery down into a new factory space in Moore, which is exciting. We need a bit more money to um, get operations happening. Um, so part of the walk is, yeah, is fundraising for that and also, you know, calling on, on governments to get behind it. The community has already supported this project enormously. They... Um, we've had members between them invest um, over $500,000 to help us purchase the machinery um, and get the intellectual property. So now we're calling on governments to help get us over the line and, and get the factory in Mall set up, and that would be the, um, the real beginning of Eureka's Future Workers Cooperative down in the valley. Well, um, we'll definitely stay in touch with any developments there. It would be great to catch, catch up again sometime in the future and see how things are progressing, but um, I better let you get back to your walking. Where are you, um, you sleeping tonight out of interest? Yeah, we're, we're walking um, through Nanagoon up to Tainong tonight and where there's a great um, native um, and bush foods farm called Peppermint Ridge Farm. We're staying out near there, which we're pretty excited about. So hopefully a nice day's walking and then a, a really fascinating and pleasant evening camping out as well. That's right. I hope the weather holds out. <laughs> yeah, well, I hear it was raining in Moore, so we'll, um, hopefully we'll dodge the raindrops and carry on in this dry weather. It's okay here in Pakenham now. Good to hear. Thanks, Dan. Speak again soon.
Thank you. And if people did want to support the project or, um, or donate to sponsor walkers, um, they can visit walkwiththevalley.org is the website. And we'll post a link via uh, the Grapevine Facebook page as well. And um, been speaking with Dan Musil from Earthworker all about the uh, Walk With The Valley, which is kicking off as we speak from Pakenham to Morwell. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.